Welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenopey, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hi there, and welcome to the Beyond the Baselines podcast. I'm Ed Chenopey, your host. And it's a pleasure to bring you the news and the views from the tennis, fitness, and country club industries here on our podcast. Tennis has a long and brilliant history. The strength of its history makes it the sport it is today. And Jim McCready and his Driftway collection is a testament to not only the sport's beautiful history, but also to his love of a game that has been a major part of his life. Having been a teaching professional on both the tennis and platform tennis, or paddle courts, up and down the East Coast, Jim now curates one of the most beloved collections of tennis artifacts, books, rackets, art, and memorabilia. Jim takes us through how the collection first started with two young boys, handing him two old wooden rackets back in the 70s when he was just a teaching professional at Bellhaven Yacht Club in Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, boasting items from the early matches of the Davis Cup and Wimbledon all the way through to World War II, his collection, subtitled Tennis at the Turn, is second to none and exhibits across the country and across the big pond in England, too. Before Jim takes the mic, I'd like to remind all our listeners what we do here at BeyondTheBaselines.com. As your club consultant, we provide consultancy, interim managers and department heads, temporary teaching professionals, instructors, and more. Presently, we manage two clubs in full and act as sports and tennis directors across the nation, helping to bring best-in-class programming while delivering sound business advice and protocols. If your club needs some financial help or just a new spring in its step, please do give us a call here in the office on 508-538-1288 or drop us an email at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com. We're here to advise and educate the club managers and boards of governors in our wonderful club industry. And now, direct from the home of the Driftway Collection in Charleston, South Carolina, a former legend on the paddle and tennis courts, here's Jack. Hey folks, welcome to the beyondthebaselines.com podcast, and this week... We have Jim McGrady on the line. He is the curator, as you will, of the Driftway Collection, which is probably, to my knowledge, the biggest collection of tennis paintings, artifacts, magazine covers. Love to have you here, Jim. Great to have you. Thanks for being here. Welcome from Charleston. Well, thank you, Ed. You know, it's uh, great meeting you and uh, an opportunity to uh, chat out about the collection and appreciate it very much. Well, you know, a mutual friend of ours, Charlie Johnstone, who, who I know from up, upstate New York, uh, gave me your name and explained a bit of what you do. But I'd like to go back into those days where you played with Charlie, little paddle tennis, little tennis up there. Take us back to those days up in Westchester, Connecticut, uh, you know, New Jersey, the tri-state area with the, uh, with the paddle platform well, tennis days. Certainly a shout out to Charlie. Thank you, uh, Charlie, if you're listening or will be listening. Uh, yeah, we uh, didn't play with each other as much as we were uh, opponents on the platform tennis uh, circuit, so to speak. There was a little tour back then. I think we met in 75 playing uh, some of the Tribu or Tribuno uh, tournaments uh, way back when. And, uh, you know, he's just a great guy. We uh, lost contact with each other over the years. And then I started playing with a fellow pro here in Charleston who happened to know Charlie through the court tennis scene. Charlie, as you know. Yep. Big court tennis guy. And uh, 
Ben Cook, who is the pro up at the Daniel Island Club, knows Charlie well. We just kind of hit it off and started, uh, you know, the Instagram stuff back and forth. He's quite an artist, I guess. He has a following with some of the Polaroid yeah. type artists, photographies, and a few books. So uh, great stuff from Charlie. And we've always remained good friends. And thank you again, Charlie, for the interview. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, you're being modest. You, you took a paddle. You became, you know, the director of the APTA. Um, yeah. So did you know, you know, the, the Squires, Dick and Gary Squires and that whole crowd up there? In I Dick was uh, a little ahead of me on the scene. He, he was uh, the legend himself, Mr. Modern Platform Tennis, of course. And then his son, uh, Gary, very active in the area. We played a couple of tournaments together. I think we may have played a 45 or something uh, 30 years ago or 20 years ago. <laughs> so I've known uh, known Gary a while, and uh, I used to be with Fox Meadow, the home of platform tennis, which is uh, always an amazing place to play a little paddle when you get a chance to. Now, are there any, I know the Driftway Collection is, is, is based around tennis, but is there any any artifacts or memorabilia from platform tennis or squash or anything like that, or is there space to... Yeah, that's a good question. I, I do have some, you know, obviously, you know, sort of as I've collected over the years, I've been around platform tennis equally as tennis. And of course you come across stuff that you can't uh, resist to include in the collection. And I've done a lot of work with the historical elements of the sport of platform tennis too. I've been on the, you know, the uh, hall of fame committee and stuff like that to sort of uh, help tell the story of platform tennis as well. So yeah, there's, there's stuff out there, the old wooden paddles and Charlie and I were playing with wooden paddles back in the day. And, and yeah, you know, now they're, now they're plastic and fiberglass and everything else. And, uh, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. I've had a good chance to meet some of the, um, you know, the people that really got the game started and were instrumental in keeping it going during the fifties uh, and sixties. And some of those are my best friends and I, uh, missed them down here in Charleston. We don't play much platform tennis down here. It really is. It's a, a new England northern sport i know it's gotten very popular out in chicago way too but um, yeah and there are a few other spots washington dc and up in the you know the massachusetts area where you have several things i was going to mention to you i have a i have a memory from wiano club oh uh, really yeah I, I don't know whether charlie played in that tournament but i played up there i think maybe 76 or something with uh, i don't know whether you ever met lanny openshaw he was kind of at the uh, i think he was at the country club of darianne for a while but, okay uh, we had good fun and you know that was that era back then before the courts turned into aluminum and the paddles turned into plastic you know <laughs> it was all wood back then well this is why your collection for tennis especially is so important it 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 it, it, it takes us it travels us back to the you know the origin of the sport and where the sports come come from and is going to but what motivated you to start this collection the driftway collection uh, it oh. it is so big what 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 started it yeah, and it's and it's not that that big. We can talk about that a little later. But the um, the beginnings kind of happened. I was uh, over at the Bellhaven Club teaching, and uh, a couple of kids came in and said, "Grandma gave us this to give to you," you know. And so all of a sudden, these beautiful 19th century uh, old wooden, beautifully crafted rackets were put in my lap, and I said, "Wow, these are really neat." And uh, just the bug bit me from there, put them up on the pro shop wall. And, uh, you know, here we are today, 40 years later, kind of thinking about uh, how much more I'm going <laughs> to accumulate. I can't get much more, you know, I got to stop somewhere. So, but uh, it's been a fun hobby. And obviously you learn a lot from 
delving into a hobby deeply. And uh, it's been a nice, nice opportunity to learn about the history of sport. And just, uh, it's been a nice ride. Well, so for everyone that doesn't know, Bellhaven is a, is a great club. I, I, you know, you're, it's, it's right on the edge, tip of Greenwich, Connecticut, out into, almost out in the sound. Uh, it's, a, it's a yacht club with, uh, as I recall, it had green and red clay courts. I don't know what it had when you were there, but as a kid, yes, I would play on the red. Actually, uh, Yvonne Lendler used to come by when we were there my last year or so there. He used to come by, as you know, he was in the area and I worked for him later. But he used to come by and practice about 1980 on the red clay there before he'd go to Paris or at least to Europe before he played the red court. So that was so, so what were you doing at the Bellhaven? I, I don't know this part of your history. Well, I was an assistant there and sort of uh, cut my teeth there a little bit with uh, Chuck Davis. You remember Chuck? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think went into the court construction business. I, I've lost touch with him, but uh, hello to Chuck if you're out there. Um, uh, but he was, uh, you know, great guy, got me started and uh, just kind of, uh, Continued from there. Then I moved up to a few other clubs in the area and uh, just kept going. It was a great, uh, it's a great run starting at Bellhaven. Yeah. Bellhaven is a great spot. It's a, it's a special place, uh, holds the traditions, you know, of the yacht club uh, with a fantastic tennis program and paddle as well. Um, yes, some paddle there. I taught many years there at paddle as well. So you're one of, so, you know, you're really in front of the game now because, our industry, a lot of a lot of the New England clubs, the northern clubs out in Chicago, they're asking for the tennis pros to go year round. You know, it used to be the tennis pros were just tennis pros yep. and the paddle season wasn't as, you know, monetarily monetized. Agreed, but now yeah. but now yeah. it is now yeah. that paddles really taken off. So you were ahead of your time because you're doing year round at Bellhaven. Now they're making the pros go year round. What do you think of that? Well, I think as I said, you know, the, uh, the, the first uh, Platform Tennis Teaching Association was organized by Doug Russell um, in 77. And I was, you know, got certified back then and have been teaching Platform Tennis since 77 um, and a little before that. But obviously you get certified, you step out a little more. And uh, most of my jobs have been year round in the metro New York area. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a great, at, at, at first I would have my job at let's say Montclair Golf Club or something. And then I would also, you know, have three or four other places that I would teach. And there was a lot of uh, uh, camps and, and uh, creative groups that would travel from club to club and, and teach the uh, growing population of platform tennis players. And so, so yeah, I was in the beginning of that and now everybody does a year round kind of gig. It's kind of a desirable gig these days for a lot of the pros. Yeah, it is desirable. And, and the clubs are actually demanding it. You know, if they have a really beloved tennis pro, they, they ask the tennis pro if he can go get certified or she can go get certified and stay year round. And yeah. um, it's, it's happening a lot more often than we, 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 we think. And it's, it's becoming a year round gig, as you say. It's such, it's such a great sport, too. I mean, obviously, it taps into your tennis skill very easily. You know, you're doing a couple of things. You're playing a little squash as well as tennis. So it's a kind of a combination of the two sports and your your grips are similar your strokes are similar uh you know the reaction the, the strategies are similar so it's a, it's a, it's a great winter transition from your summer game i'd like to welcome our first sponsor here at beyondthebaselines.com podcast and that's play by court playbycourt.com choosing the right technology partner is not an easy task however staying with the same outdated provider can be a costly decision and with today's fast-changing environment, well, you need a partner that will help you adapt to the ever-growing needs of your members. 
at Play by Court while they provide the best technology solution customized for your club. With their app, your members can easily manage their profile, they, they can book courts, programs, lessons, they can pay. I asked Andre, show me the payment solutions, it's fantastic. And your members can communicate directly with members and you, the staff. So please go have a look at playbycourt.com and see what really matters most to your members. Your club, your rules, your software. Playbycourt.com. Let's go back to the collection for a sec. Um, obviously, you started there at Bellhaven and it's grown. And, and please tell us the size of it. And as you're doing that, what are your, some of your favorite parts or items in the collection and why they're special to you? Well, it's, it's not quite as big as you may have uh, trumpeted in the beginning there. We've got a, probably 2,000 to 2,200 pieces in the collection. It seems like a lot there, but there are some other collectors around in the U.S. and even in Europe that have some bigger collections. I've always prided mine on uh, being uh, high quality, the patinas and the, uh, and the, uh, the conditions of uh, the pieces, the rackets in particular are all very high. So it, it's nice to see museum quality pieces and not just something with you know warp and a scratch and a broken mm -hmm. string and that kind of stuff. So um, that's kind of the strength of my collection is it, it tells a story um, you know, very thoroughly through the de decades from the beginning in the 1870s up through, I sort of stopped collecting for a long time up through the budget era, the pre-World War II era. And, uh, you know, that's about six, seven decades in there. And it was really, my goal is to collect um, efficiently through those decades so that I could display and then tell the story uh, of tennis uh, in an attractive manner in a gallery or in a you know a small little exhibition of sorts. So that's kind of where the strength of the collection is. It's not necessarily as big or as powerful as some of the other collections around, but um, you know the pieces I have some neat pieces. Obviously, over the years um, I have one of the early. I've only seen one other example of a early 1902 Davis Cup program. Uh, I don't think they made a program at the initial year of. 1900, which is when the Davis Cup started. Um, and then 1901, they didn't play the Davis Cup. Uh, England didn't send over a team and it was just the US and uh, America uh, and uh, England uh, vying for the cup. Um, mm -hmm. And so they didn't send a team over in, in 01. And so the second Davis Cup was in 02. And I've got a nice little program, uh, in great condition that, uh, and then, uh, you know, there's a lot of good paper that I have. I've sort of prided myself on finding the historic uh, paper, the books and the programs and the, uh, the photography. A lot of early photography is always nice to find in pristine condition in somebody's drawer that they've forgotten about that they've had there for 60 years in some attic somewhere. So that's always the fun stuff. I have a Tilden trophy from his 1923 U.S. Nationals, which is now, of course, the U.S. Open. He won the doubles several times as well as the singles. So Tilden mm -hmm. is always a good collector of stuff, um, good person to collect with. I've got some early photographs of him too, which are unusual. And um, You know, there's just a lot of good quality stuff. The rackets really got me turned on in the beginning. I think, um, you know, the quality rackets, I can't say I have necessarily a racket from a particular early player, but examples of the rackets are, you know, getting harder and harder to find. And, right. Um, whether it's from England or whether it's from the U.S., uh, you know, finding that pristine racket in the back of a, a flea market or on eBay or something is always a great find. 
Yeah, I was I was up in uh, Hopewell, New Jersey, antiquing uh, about a month back, and this antique store had. I took pictures of them because some of the the rackets were fancy. I had had never seen the make or model. Yeah. Um, just took some pictures of them and um, went back uh, a couple weeks later, and a couple of couple of the good looking ones were gone. So they they are around, but um, you know your exhibit, uh, you, your collection has exhibited in London. U.S. Open, and and now you're living in Charleston, and I know that uh, it's it's been there at the uh, Family Circle Cup. What is what is the future of the collection? How do you envision showing it off to tennis lovers? Well, you know, I'd I'd love to have an easy answer to that. A brick and mortar place would be great to have. Um, you know, I have had some discussions with people locally as well as um, around a few other places. It. You know, it takes quite a bit to put a exhibit together, so um, you know it's not an easy thing. But um, you know, I, I, there's hope that, um, and, and many of us collectors are hoping we can do something with our collections before you know the the final day arrives. But the the um, you know the, the the thought would be to find some sort of um, you know facility, ideally a club or a tournament locale, tournament venue that. Uh, is interested in upgrading and maybe has space for a, you know, a 1,500, 2,000 square foot uh, little gallery that would uh, highlight the history of tennis. Uh, we're hoping something like that will happen down here as well. You know, it's funny. I, I dug out through my garage I, I, uh, the other day um, for my daughter. She was looking for one of my original rackets because she'd never seen a wooden racket, which to me is yeah, unbelievable. I grew up with Max by McEnroe's and um, sure. Max by Fort was actually I've one and then a Slazenger uh, wooden racket. Uh, yeah. I, I grew up with wood. You know, I'm, I'm of that ilk. But um, while we were going through the old wooden rackets, I found two court tennis rackets that I had played with back when I was a member at the uh, racket club in New York. Those are really incredible to see. I, I'm sure you've seen them, but you know, the way they're strong, the different type of string in them. It's just, it is a part of tennis's history to look back at court tennis, don't you think? Yes. I mean, that's really where the initial, um, you know, flow into the game came from court tennis, uh, 1870s uh, uh, into the first Wimbledon championship in 1877. They were borrowing, many of the players were court tennis players, uh, and they would just show up with their racket and play the game as such, uh, probably a pretty dead ball and a high net and everybody was kind of tapping the ball back and forth. So the court tennis players came in with a racket that they were comfortable with. And then the early rackets began to fashion themselves off of that design. They enlarged the head a little bit because the court tennis racket's pretty small. Yeah, it's very small. Head a little bigger, but it was still a lopsided kind of head that they call it. And then the head began to straighten out a little bit and it became more lawn tennis oriented and, uh, those rackets were put away and, and some of those early ones are very collectible. You know, you're talking thousands of dollars to pick up rackets like that these days. Um, and they show up occasionally. Most of the top museums have great examples of them. And uh, that's where it all started with court tennis for sure. You know, going back to that, I, I played court tennis and um, it was Charlie that got me involved and, you know, he, he got so into it. He's internationally ranked and all that. And yeah. I, I loved playing the sport. It, it hurt my elbow. I have to admit, but, I, and, and I want to ask you these couple questions. I, I, I and I, I don't know the answer. I think the scoring for tennis comes from from court tennis and the clock, fifteen thirty, 
40 and game, but do the chases have any relation in, in court tennis? You have this chase rule, right? Is that where the ad and deuce came from in, in tennis? And what's the history of that? Well, it's, it's hard to sell. I, I think, you know, getting into a, in a short story here, going back to those first few days of Wimbledon, there was um, a game being played, uh, you know, a, a, a precursor to tennis um, being played around the English countryside in the uh, early 1870s. And somebody patented it, uh, Walter Wingfield uh, patented, and all of a sudden you've got a set of rules that nobody really enjoyed. It was a box set that you'd buy like a croquet set. You'd take it mm -hmm. home, you'd play in the backyard. And so the rules were all over the place. And as Wimbledon decided they wanted to hold a contest, they ended up um, you know, having a few guys spend a few weekends uh, some beautiful mansion over the you know the English countryside hitting balls back and forth and deciding what the court would more or less be and what some of the early rules were and we still have quite a few of those rules that are very consistent very similar to what they were using back for the first Wimbledon um, the height of the net has dropped a little bit but essentially the baselines and the court size and the surface boxes are all pretty much what they were back in 1877 so it's hard to say where the court tennis rules may have influenced lawn tennis, but definitely, you know, they're, they're similar. That, uh, that uh, clock face scoring system mm -hmm. they kept. And, uh, you know, there was in the beginning, they didn't play advantage sets. You would play first to six and that would be it. If you got to five all, you were playing one, one, one game. game for the set. And then you didn't switch sides except at the end of the sets. Um, you weren't doing the game sides back and forth, you know, every, every odd game. So it's kind of a fuzzy area there. A lot of the rules of tennis and the origins of tennis have always, you know, sort of blurred into other activities back in the 1860s and 70s. But um, there's, some, there's, there's some transition there from court tennis. Yeah, I... It you know, going back the other way, I always found it weird in the middle of a game, I had to switch sides in court tennis to go serve. Yeah. And they have, <laughs> yeah. And they have, uh, um, uh, holding points in abeyance in court tennis. Don't you? You kind of, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. I, I have not played uh, competitively. I've only played a few, you know, knock arounds with uh, a couple of people up at Newport, uh, 25 years ago. <laughs> Jacques Felice, you know, Jacques, I don't, uh, I don't know Jacques, but, yeah. uh, but he at the Hall of Fame for a while uh, with uh, court tennis, and then he taught some areas around Newport and Rhode Island. Nice, nice guy, a paddle pipe guy as well. Actually, I might, I think he might have been at um, Nonquit. I have a feeling he might yes, have been there. That's correct. Yes. I do know Jacques, I just didn't ever knew his last name. There you go, Jacques Felice. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny you call it lawn tennis, you know, to 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 to. to make it separate from court tennis or real tennis yeah. or royal tennis, as it's yeah. also been called. Um, and do you remember the days of NELTA, the New England Lawn Tennis Association? Do you remember those days? Sure. And the USTA used to be the United States Lawn Tennis Association. Way back, it used to be the United States National Lawn Tennis Association, the USNLTA. So wow. uh, the lawn tennis has been uh, dying off as we get into this modern, I think really, I think that changed, the lawn tennis changed in the 70s for the USTA, um, okay. the, tennis, the tennis boom that we know of. But, um, you know, one of the reasons I've always collected up through the World War II and the Budge Grand Slam in 38 is that after the World War II, it seemed to 
not be lawn tennis anymore. It seemed to be much more like we know it today, short sleeve shirts and mm -hmm. shorts and, you know, everybody was sweating a lot and it was much more athletic and, you know, so it was much more like today, I think, than pre-World War II. If you were to say, look back at your career in tennis and paddle, which I think is, uh, paddle has added just as much to your life, I think, how, how have they contributed to your life? I mean, how have you, uh, you said to me when we were talking on the phone when, after Charlie gave me your number that tennis and, and paddle, you live, to, you live to play those sports. Where has it taken you? Where have you been in the world? What, has it, what have those two sports done for you? Well, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a physicality and I think it's also a mental thing. You know, it teaches us so many great life lessons. Um, you know, whether you're a junior, uh, a mid adult or a senior is always teaching you something. And so there's this quality of, of experience when you're on the tennis court and you're talking to buddies or talking to people you haven't met before. And there's a code of conduct and an ethics element to the sport I, I, I it's just it's a great sport for everybody I don't I don't think there's another sport like it you know the team sports are much different and you know boxing they've said is close to like tennis but it, it really is so combatant compared to mm -hmm. tennis you're sort of you know being a nice person on the other side of the net you're trying to err in favor of your opponent at all times you know a lot of that's disappeared in the last bunch of years but <laughs> but uh but you, you, you know it as someone who's been in the career yourself is the, is, is, it's a quality uh, lifestyle. It keeps you young, it keeps you fit, it keeps you, uh, you know, in an, in an active group of friends. Um, you don't even have to play a pure match to enjoy, you know, the elements of sport, practicing, trying to improve your forehand, taking a lesson, you know, and my case, uh, being able to teach and help people enjoy it so much. Uh, it, it's, it's been a true uh, life journey with tennis for me. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, you know, as you think about it, I enjoyed every element that I went through, but I would have loved to have maybe, you know, stepped up into the higher, higher realms of, of coaching. Uh, I'm not sure I would have ever been qualified, but the but, you know, you watch some of these coaches on the pro tour and you just marvel at how they're getting some of this uh, activity out of their players. You know, it's just mm -hmm. uh, incredible what's happening on the pro game and how it's changing and uh, growing. And it's, you know, it's been a good milestone for years. The sport has evolved nicely. There's never been really a drop off period. You know, occasionally there's less participation, but it's always puts one step in front of the other to move forward. It's like track and field. You're always breaking records and trying to push the push the athleticism of the sport it's a wonderful experience you know you bring up an idea an idea for a questionnaire that that i battle back and forth with myself i've written about it i've asked others about it the pro tour right now is coming back out of covid and uh we're we're slowly i think going to lose the big three at some point yeah. um and we now have uh you know a women's game that's actually become very the u.s women's open final was one of the most exciting matches i've watched in a long time the whole, um, tournament, was fabulous, yeah. it, the whole tournament was fantastic for the women on the women's side but i always wonder and i'm hoping but i always wonder how much the pro tour affects the play or participation or the entry of a new player to tennis because and i say that because 
as I teach up and down the coast and around the, around the world, really, I've taught, um, most of my students play doubles. Yeah. And yet, when we watch the pro tour, the majority of the coverage is singles. Yeah, sure. And it's a completely different game from what your club three, five player or four old player plays when they're playing singles, a completely different game when they're playing doubles. Yeah. Have you ever thought about that? Does the pro tour really help tennis expand? Where, where, where do you come in on that? Yeah. I, you know, I definitely think it does. I, I, I think we're in an era. I was thinking about this the other day when I was sort of prepping for this, I was thinking, you know, to see, we seem to be in a, what I'm going to call a tennis channel era right now, sort of the last decade or so, the whole evolution of broadcasting, uh, you know, besides the internet and all the wonderful, uh, you know, personalities that are coming out of the sport, it's, it's partially because we're able to, you know, bring it into your living room so effectively and the mm-hmm. slow motion cameras and the fact that this person is wearing something you like, or this person is a bit of a pain in the butt. And, you know, <laughs> there are different yep. personalities out there fighting for, you know, your, 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 your viewing dollars, so to speak. And, uh, I, I just think it, it's definitely affects the um, interest in tennis. Uh, we realized that one of the just the playing characteristics of the sport has been a positive for this post COVID, even during COVID, you know, the big boom in participation because you were socially distanced from people and you could maintain that for half an hour, or for an hour, or whatever you were going to play. And I think that opened people's eyes to how fabulous tennis is. I think the viewing has got to be up over the past you know year or so um and oh. and the u.s open you know the the perfect event that it was it was just a beautiful event to come back and see fans in the in the stands and, and get this whole you know energy revved up again it just seems to be uh you know definitely affecting uh, the average person who maybe 10 15 20 years ago thought of tennis as more of a minor sport sort of a you know, a quiet PBS, uh, Bud Collins kind of uh, intimate broadcast. Now it's become, I think, much more mainstream. You know, it's funny. I, I My parents, we used to uh, go over to England and rent a house in the summers. And it was during oh, Wimbledon. Jealous. And you'd have the box or the telly, as they say over there. My wife's British. So she always laughs when I try to imitate her, her accent. But we would sit in front of the telly and you'd watch seven to 10 to 12 points, maybe three games. And there would be no words said by the commentators. Nothing would be said. It was just basically a, a camera and a game. And now we have, as you say, so many wonderful commentators. I mean, McEnroe, I know people love him and hate him. I, I actually think he's a wonderful commentator. Yeah, uh, I think Cliff Drysdale is one of the best. Yeah. And, and it really makes tennis, as you say, come into your living room. And I hope it attracts the younger generation. I think it will. I think it will will because I think, you know, we're getting to where, you know, you look at uh, some of the kids sports out there, the skateboarding and and some of the individual sports that a lot of kids are sort of inventing in their living room and then posting it on the internet. You know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of that individuality and that creativity. Tennis is the most demanding creative sport there is. I mean, you can be a basketball player. What an athletic, you know, sport that is football, you've got to be tough as nails, baseball, you've got to really stick in there for long periods of time. But tennis seems to have all those elements. What these players are doing on the court out there in a two and a half hour match is unbelievable. And I, I, I think more people are becoming aware of this, of how special tennis is, besides the life lessons that it teaches. You know. Well, as I get older, I think it's really unbelievable. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you you subtitle your collection tennis at the turn and yeah. um that made me think of where do you think tennis and 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 i'd like your viewpoint on this where do you think tennis will be with so many other racket sports like pickleball vying for attention at the next turn of the century where do you think tennis will be well, you know, or hopefully it's a positive. Like I was saying earlier, I, th- I think it's had an, uh, an exponential growth decade after decade after decade. And I, I think the, the quality elements of tennis are at the top scale of, of athleticism and commitment and how hard it is to play tennis. You know, you can have a fun little hit at a 3035 level and enjoy the sport because of all the equipment enhancements and the the fashion and the round robins and the club activities and the internet, you know, there's so much you can do in tennis, but pushing the envelope. I mean, you look at, you know, the Dimitrovs and the, and the, the mid-level pros. I mean, uh, Greg Grigor has been around for a long time, but I'm seeing a lot of these mid-level pros that are all playing better than Federer did 15 years ago. I mean, it's, you know, Roger set the standard and now everybody's playing better than Roger. And it's, it's incredible to see yep. where it's going to be in 10, 15, 25, 100 years when they're really changed the sport, you know, will be totally different. But I think the health elements and the, and the return to the individual is so strong that, you know, the passion, you, you know this too, is the, the various clubs that you work at, everybody, the tennis community is so committed and so passionate to their sport and their hobby that they, they go the extra mile. They volunteer the extra little bit to, you know, get somebody to come on the court and play. So I, I think the intrinsic values of tennis are so strong that um, I think the future is just going to be fabulous for it. Well, I think you're right. And I hope you're right because it's my life too. It's really come back to my life. Uh, tennis after a hiatus there is I went into marketing and advertising, but um, Jim, it's been wonderful to speak with you about your collection, the Driftway collection. Please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and find out more about the collection. Well, um, the, um, the, the internet's the best, I guess. We have a website uh, called uh, driftwaycollection.com. Um, it sort of clues you into what we're doing. And then I've got an internet, uh, a Instagram page that uh, is the Driftway Collection with a T-H-E in the, in the beginning. Um, and then Facebook the same way. And uh, once you get in the... Uh, in the loop there you can see lots of images lots of uh posted things that are in the collection as well as uh, some commentary i occasionally write something a little bit and changing the uh changing the content all the time so uh come on over and visit well i hope i hope they do i i, I know i'm a v- regular visitor i uh, i'll put the 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 website in the show notes so people can always just scroll down and click through um yeah. And, you know, it's, it's it's an important thing to be documenting tennis. As you say, it's growing exponentially. Uh, maybe the collection will grow exponentially in the next 20 to 30 years. But thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. And if we can do it again sometime on another topic, be happy to do that. Great. Great to have you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening this week. We really appreciate it. I just want to let everyone know that our introductory music is by Ed Shanafy Sr. and his amazing trio. And all the chapter breaks is original music by my daughter, Olivia Shanafy. We hope to hear more from them as we continue this podcast through 2021. And we hope to see more of you as well. Thanks for listening.
to beyondthebaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.beyondthebaselines.com which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.